Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss and the impact that losing a loved one to suicide can have, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. I am recording this pod as the first pod in my new flat, so apologies if there's a little bit of an echo that you can hear. I'm trying to work on that and make sure my bedroom is soundproof as possible, but let's get on with the show. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. So for this podcast, I think it's going to be a must listen for anyone who's about to go to university or someone who knows someone who is at university because my special guest is Isabella DeGeorge, and she is the founder of Positive Changes in Placement, which campaigns for universities to update their policies and improve wellbeing services for placement students. When I was in university, I was incredibly lucky that when I finally had the courage to tell my university medical centre I was suicidal, I was seen straight away and put on eight weeks of cognitive behavioural therapy. But if I hadn't told them I was suicidal, I would have had to have waited six to eight months for an appointment. So the work that Isabella is doing is absolutely amazing. Izzy started this platform in memory of her brother Harrison, who was a placement student at a university in the north of England and who tragically took his own life in December 2020. In this episode, we discuss Izzy's lived experience of anxiety herself, including fears of abandonment and how that shaped her life, her job choice and her mental health. We also briefly touch on how alcohol abuse in her family affected her growing up, as well as a deep dive into the events that transpired around her brother's death, her grieving process, and how she tries now to make sure no one else goes through what she went through. This is how our conversation went. Izzy, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. We finally got here. We had a couple uh, cancellations and reschedules before we got to this point. It's been such a difficult year and a half for so many of us and for you especially. I cannot imagine how hard it's been for you. But how are you at the moment? How are you coping given what we will discuss later on in the pod? I'm okay. I have a lot of up and down days, but I'm definitely enjoying that life is going back to normal a little bit more because normality is definitely good and it's nice to be able to be around people but yeah I'm up and down quite a lot but hopefully heading in the right direction <laughs> yeah I definitely agree with you I think that's what something we all, we're all hoping to aspire to achieve to anyway the topics we're going to speak about today is are so needed for university students right now before they go to uni and when they're there so I hope this pod helps any of them listening let's just start the show <laughs> I want to dive straight in on this episode, Izzy, because like we said, we're going to talk about all the stuff you do with positive changes in placements later on. But I want to start with your journey first because it kind of brings that inspiration for it. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through your early life, growing up, upbringing, family, teenage years. And and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Izzy we meet here? I'm Izzy, obviously. So I'm a nurse at the moment. I don't know. I think there probably has been early mental health experiences. So 
I grew up with my brother and my parents, but my dad did have quite a lot of issues in the sense of he had bipolar. So it was an up and down childhood in a sense. But I think there was early mental health experiences, obviously, because living through my dad having bipolar. And then I've always been quite an anxious person and a bit stressed out as well. But yeah, so have lived my life with other people having mental health issues and things. But yeah, grew up with my brother, had my mum, and then also my dad as well, was kind of in and around where we are. But yeah. Like you said, you had some anxiety, which might have come to the surface or not, but you said it came to the surface a bit more because of your dad. And I understand he had some issues related to addictions as well. How did witnessing that affect your mental health and shape it as you grew up? Did it make you grow up quite quickly, do you think? Yeah, definitely. So I definitely grew up quite a lot quicker than most other people because so my mum's an air hostess so we would go to my dad's whenever my mum was over like going to Singapore or something so I ended up looking after my brother quite a lot just because my dad wasn't really able to do it it definitely made me grow up a lot faster than other people and it was difficult growing up with a dad with bipolar and addictions because it's definitely not a normal childhood you have to do kind of the adult things in the sense of make sure that you get to school okay and and whatnot and also like my dad just wasn't in the headspace to be able to look after us properly. So I ended up looking after my brother quite a lot. Not directly in the sense of my dad would go out, but my dad wasn't particularly useful in a sense. And then when we got to about, I think it was when I was turned 16, we did used to have nannies and stuff. But it was obviously quite expensive for my mum. So I would just look after my brother between the ages of 16 and 18 till I went off to uni, which was actually it was a great time now if I look back on it because it was time that I really got to spend with my brother but trying to look after a 14 year old when you're 16 and they want to go a little bit off the rails it's a bit (laughs) bit challenging but in all fairness it did work quite well like we never had house parties because our mum drilled into us you do not have house parties you do not misbehave because the neighbours are gonna tell me exactly what you do anyway so it was definitely an interesting upbringing especially from where I'm from because it was very different to everyone else's so where I'm from is very like what we almost call it Stepford Wives in a sense people have lots of money people have normal families and everything and we were kind of on the outside of it slightly because we definitely didn't have a normal life in comparison to everyone else. I guess when you're that young you kind of just have to adapt to the situation you're put in essentially. I think we as humans can surprise ourselves a little bit with how we react to those situations how did you react and adapt and were you self-aware that you were having to kind of take on this role or did it seem quite normalized because that was just the way your life was it definitely felt normal because that was just how life was but then I think I would have conversations with friends and it was very different to the way that they were living their lives as a 16 year old but I think you do just adapt and it's definitely shaped me for the person that I am now Like, I'm very independent. Like, I can very much look after myself. I don't really... I mean, I definitely need people around me because I I love human interaction. (laughs) But I I live alone now, so I don't need people in a sense of I can pay my bills, I can figure things out. But it's definitely shaped me a lot more than I think I ever realised. We're going to talk about your brother in depth in a bit, Izzy. But do you think being on your own with your brother and it was just you in the house at that time made your relationship closer and gave you some like maybe more happy memories that perhaps might not have happened if say your mum and dad were in the house all the time I know it's a bit of a weird question to say but how do you reflect on that me and my brother was to be fair we were super super close and I think it is because of all those years that it was just the two of us or my mum would be going off to work 
and we'd have like a random nanny looking after us and we'd be like this person's insane (laughs) and between us we just got on so well but like there was no one to kind of regulate what we were doing so we would just eat whatever we wanted to because we could we ate like just so much cereal but also if we had arguments there was no one to kind of come between us and there was literally a time that we drew knives on each other because we were like <laughs> we literally got so angry at each other we picked up the knife and we were both like this is so weird like what are we doing <laughs> but we were definitely really close and I think we were a lot closer than a lot of other siblings because of all that time that we spent together and we were just kind of a bit of a duo but also with my dad not being around it was me my mum and my brother so we were a trio and it was very much we didn't if we argued we would argue and then five minutes later everyone would make up again and we were like we can't let each other down because we're so close-knit and stuff so so yeah definitely brought me and my brother closer together and we probably had some weird experiences like drawing knives on each other (laughs) because there was no one to regulate us one thing that came up a lot when we chatted off air is he was this fear of abandonment that you had back then and maybe you still do to some extent now can you pinpoint a trigger for that during your childhood and and how has it manifested in the friendships or or relationships you've had as a teenager and and as an adult and maybe even a young girl who knows I think it's because my dad was so in and out of my life that that definitely created that fear of abandonment because he never really knew where he was going to be or what was going to be going on there was definitely a lack of stability and kind of as I have done therapy and stuff like that I've definitely learned that my upbringing wasn't stable and I kind of I crave stability in a sense but I think in terms of relationships I mean this is what we said off air like I've never had a boyfriend has lived in the same city as me (laughs) I do try to keep them quite separate so my last relationship we were together for three and a half years we broke up about seven months ago and he lived in Cardiff the whole time so it was great because we had a really nice relationship of when we were together it was fantastic but then we could both go off and live our own separate lives and even prior to that like my other ex lives in Exeter. I've literally never had a boyfriend that has lived in the same city as me or I've never even been seeing someone that lives in the same city. And I don't know if that's because I can then live my separate life, he can live theirs. And then it's not as intimate in a sense. I mean, there's definitely the, the level of intimacy, but living two very separate lives, you can almost slightly control if someone's going to do anything which is going to upset you. So I think I've definitely realised as time has gone on, that fear of abandonment has definitely infiltrated the rest of my life as well, (laughs) which is a shame, but I can recognise it. I think the key thing is having self-awareness as well. Just picking up on what you said there, the kind of keeping at arm's length of your relationships very much sounds like a control element. And the spontaneity, I guess, and the preference for you having those solely long distance relationships is is quite unique. (laughs) Thankfully, the fear of abandonment was never justified for any of your previous partners it was internalized in you but I guess that can't make life very easy you know do you think that preference will change as you get older and you go on this recovery journey more or do you do you always think you'll keep that keep Aladdin Newcastle or the Isle of Wight or something like that I would love to have a relationship where it is the same city as me like I look at my friends and they go out for drinks and they're like oh I'm gonna go back to my boyfriend's house and I'm like oh that sounds nice that sounds lovely <laughs> it doesn't manifest itself but I can still see already that like I'm still doing it but I think at the moment because I semi live between two places so I live kind of in Southampton kind of in London so I've got a London flat but because I'm home a lot of the time I'm not really anywhere in a sense as in a lot of my friends say I'm quite elusive because no one really knows where I'm going to be (laughs) 
I don't even know where I'm going to be half the time. And I don't know if I have a train ticket, which is going to get me through Waterloo Station. But I do hope that one day that I can have like a, that that fear of abandonment definitely doesn't come through. But I think obviously I just go for people which are in another city to me for some reason. I think I like keeping them at arm's length. (laughs) I'm just thinking about like, you probably have to put like your date in that like location thing to like 150 miles away minimum or something like that. You work as a nurse now, Izzy. But looking back, given the fact that you had to look after your brother and assume that adult role at a very young age, and obviously you were younger than him, do you think you would have had that desire or spark to be a nurse and look after people without that situation or without this happening to you? In all fairness, I have no idea how I decided to become a nurse. I think when I was at college, I was looking at nursing or social work. But once again, that's kind of a similar type of profession where you're looking after people. I've never been someone that would want to go into business or economics or anything like that because I like to be around people I like to care for people so I definitely think that that has shaped my career yeah I definitely yeah I do think my upbringing has made me a bit more compassionate and empathetic as well but I just kind of ended up falling into nursing but I definitely think that my upbringing did influence that. Despite doing all of that when you were younger and as a teenager, Izzy, and having to balance, I guess, all the things that come with it, come with being a teenager and also having to do that, you did have some support structures in place, luckily. Your aunt was a big factor and I really wanted to kind of shout her out and give her some spotlight here. How did she help you develop that level of decision-making you needed to effectively run a household or know when something needed a certain approach? Yeah, massive shout out to my auntie. She is absolutely amazing and she's been such a support for my family but basically whenever things kind of went wrong with my dad and my mum would be out the country because there's basically if my mum was in Singapore there was nothing that she could do and obviously this was 15 years ago so communication was so much more difficult like she would have to go and get like a little phone card and then go and go to a little box or something to try and call us so my auntie was fantastic she was very much there to support us and she is very much a strong woman and I think that's really influenced me in the sense of yeah she she's just such a strong 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 woman and she's also just so compassionate but she also has a really dark sense of humor which I think has really gotten us through things and she will say things as they are which is what you need in difficult situations and especially with my brother she has really gotten us through with her dark sense of humor so it's my brother's inquest next week and the funny thing is we're all thinking about what are we going to wear and I'm getting my hair done beforehand because that's how we deal with things and it's not to say that I'm someone who really cares about their like appearance massively but we get through these difficult situations by taking light in other things like so for my brother's funeral I made sure that I faked hands and did my nails <laughs> because that's what helped us get through it and I think my auntie's sense of humour has definitely helped us through things. Before we move on to university I just want to talk about your education in regards to secondary school and sixth form because doing all that you had to do must have been quite overwhelming at times. Did it ever impact your education and And did you ever tell any teachers about your home situation, maybe in the hope that they would support you or, I don't know, maybe give you an extension to a deadline? I never really, a lot of the teachers didn't really know what was going on in our family life. I'm just the kind of person where I will just keep pushing myself and I don't like to let internal factors kind of affect that. So I'm like, I'm very, very hardworking, almost too much and also a massive perfectionist. It wasn't probably until uni that actually I started to recognise what was going on like internally and how things had affected me. And at that point, I then was able to ask for like extensions and stuff like that. 
which helped me massively through uni but at school I never did like I never really told what anyone what was going on we just kind of got through it in a sense so it didn't affect my school life at all which you would think it would but I think I just was like I'm so determined to not let this affect how I do in school and like my career as well it's a great amount of resilience you must have had, uh, especially as a teenager, to kind of go through that. I don't know how I would have probably dealt with it. I want to move on to university now because you were officially diagnosed with anxiety in 2014. And that was just before you went to university. So how did you feel when you were diagnosed? And then tell me about this part of your journey. So I've always recognised that I've ha- I'm someone who is kind of a bit highly strung, always worried about like being late for things, always just worried I wasn't laid back at all so I think the benefit of being diagnosed was that someone was kind of seeing me in a sense and understanding that actually there is something further going on to this just being my brain in a sense so I've been on medication since 2014 and there's definitely been a journey in terms of up and down as a uni student I wasn't particularly good at always taking my medication because I would decide that I was a lot better than I really was and it wasn't until my housemates would go Izzy you're acting really irrationally can you go back on your medication please throughout uni it was difficult because also life is like with circumstances changing constantly it was all very up and down but in all fairness like since I've been diagnosed it's I've had this diagnosis but I don't really talk about it so I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and I think it's the first time that I've actually said like to an audience that I've been on medication and that I've been diagnosed with a mental health condition and because I just don't really tend to tell people and I don't know if that's because I don't know if that's because I'm embarrassed of it I just don't want it to affect my life and I actually like as time is going on I realize I do need to speak about it. Has it become more normalized since you started speaking about it for the first time has it become more I guess embedded in everyday conversation that if it does come up you will say oh yeah you know casually you know I take medication for this but you know it affects me in this way and it affects me in this way but doesn't affect me in that way. I do think it's become more normal for me to talk about it, but I don't, I still don't really talk about it. And I know that's bad because I advocate so much for other people to speak about their mental health and to check in on one another. But I think this is also what my brother did. He was such an advocate for everyone else, but he didn't advocate for himself. In all fairness, like I was having a little conversation with someone from work who has been diagnosed with anxiety and she's been really struggling and has had to take loads of time off work. I ended up saying about my, like, I was like oh I'm on medication too I have been for years and she was like what I cannot believe that she was like I've worked with you for years and just no one has a clue and I do I want to try and talk about it more but I still feel awkward about it like even now I'm like oh I don't like talking about it I I need to start talking about it more but I still don't and I don't even know how to really bring up the conversation with it which is weird because I talk about mental health so much you know I know what you mean I think I think in a work capacity I think it becomes even more I guess the mental barriers become a lot more there, essentially. I want to talk about your placement period because you were a placement student for a period of time when you were at university and and so was was your brother, which we'll talk about in a bit. But your own personal experience wasn't great. Why was that? So obviously being a nursing student, I had a lot of placements. So my first placement was fine, but I was definitely struggling with my mental health. And just after my first placement, I got diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And then my second placement, I had a lot of barriers in the sense of I got really bad tonsillitis so I was off work for two weeks because I got admitted to hospital with it. I then also broke my arm (laughs) so there was a lot (laughs) it was a very tumultuous time but I definitely felt the pressure throughout my placements to make sure that I was there make sure that I was turning up and making sure that I was adhering to my hours 
and I can definitely see that as like even throughout second year which I think is when probably my mental health got worse because of my housing situation a boyfriend had broken up with me and I think being 19 it was just difficult you know (laughs) and I would go to placement I would always go to placement even if I was feeling absolutely awful and I felt so much pressure to make sure that I was adhering to those hours and making sure that I was getting my competencies and things and actually I look back and it was a really really unhappy time of my life in some senses though placement was great because you learn how to work in like a normal environment and you're around loads of people especially as a nursing student and a lot of the time I'd be on placement with good friends and stuff which was always a lot of fun but it was super super stressful I think especially that the hours was the biggest thing because if you didn't make your hours then you weren't going to pass the course and it was very much you turn up or you or you're going to fail. I think what some people or many people don't get about mental health is is that it's not just about giving someone resources and telling them it's okay to talk. It's how they're practically supported in the workplace, you know, their workload, if they're allowed time off, being valued as a person. Is that something you'd agree with? And tell me why, and the listeners, despite your personal tutor being very supportive, that largely wasn't the case in your experience, was it? No, it definitely wasn't. I mean... It was very much you turn up or, as I say, you're going to fail. I mean, I, I, when did I graduate? I graduated five years ago, so it was very different. But mental health wasn't really spoken about back then. Or so I feel like it wasn't spoken about. Whereas since being in work, like my workplace have been unbelievably supportive. And they recognise if I'm not doing particularly well, they will do what they can. So, for example, I'm on reduced hours. My old manager put me on admin duties rather than making me go out and work on the boards because I recognised that I wasn't going to be able to support people because of my role like I would take charge I had to look after my colleagues as well so it wasn't just taking charge of the whole ward it was taking charge of my colleagues and making sure that everyone was okay and I wasn't able to, to kind of support people emotionally and luckily my managers have been really really supportive with it but then I have had previous managers where they've been a bit like okay go off I'm sick then but yeah, I think it was very much you kind of just get on with it with placement and there wasn't the, yeah, definitely wasn't the support in place. I remember being, I think I was literally 18. And it was one of my first ever placements and I got put onto a mental health ward because you had to do a mental health placement even as a child nurse. And I did it for a week, I think. And it was a re- like really, really severe and like people with really severe mental health conditions. And I was 18 and obviously I'd grown up with a dad with bipolar, but I'd never seen people in this capacity and I just was like oh my goodness me and I emailed my personal tutor saying like I don't feel like I can be here like I didn't feel particularly safe in a sense obviously I was safe but there was a bloke who would just follow me around the whole day and I was like please just leave me alone like I was a little 18 year old so I was really really small <laughs> so like in terms of like physicalities it felt quite I don't know it was it it was scary but it was very much like well you have to do this so you need to go over it and you need to move on and I got through that week but that was with the support of one of my one of my peers he was absolutely amazing was like right come with me we're gonna be okay and you're gonna get through this week but the uni didn't support me with that. I want to move on to your therapy journey because you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the pod why did you feel the desire or need to seek out therapy? What was your experience of it like in university and adult life? And what coping mechanisms or tools did therapy give you, Izzy? Because when we spoke off air, it sounds like the university and what you've just said, it wasn't very forgiving if you missed a session of therapy, let alone a session of lectures or seminars. So I've had a lot of therapy as the years have gone on. And I think it's because 
my mum's very she's a massive advocate for therapy and she was like you need to process what happened with your dad and the fact that you had to grow up so quickly so I don't think I seek therapy until I was probably at uni and I got counselling through the university but because I was a placement student I wasn't able to make every single Wednesday because I wasn't able to take Wednesdays off because I also didn't want to tell my placement about my mental health condition so it was all a vicious cycle <laughs> massively so I think I had three sessions and then I turned around and said I'm sorry I've got placement and they were like okay well you can't come to our therapy anymore essentially which was a massive shame because I'd kind of broken down those barriers and I'd started talking to someone about it and then it was almost slightly taken away from me so I definitely felt disadvantaged because I was a placement student back then. Since then, I've undertaken CBT, which was through the NHS, but I think I got 12 sessions and then it was, OK, you're done now. I had private counselling as well, so I paid for it myself and it was really, really beneficial, actually. And it got to a point where actually we mutually agreed that I didn't really need any more. And currently I'm undergoing bereavement counselling and I'm also getting wellbeing coaching at work and it's really, really good. So I get my bereavement counselling every Wednesday and then on Thursday, Friday-ish, I get my wellbeing coaching, which is one of my really senior managers, but she's like properly trained in it. And we just talk about how my week is going and how I can kind of cope with what's going on. And something that she's taught me is definitely my circle of control of what can I do to control the situation around me? Is there anything I can do? no so therefore I need to let it go because I've realized I do like to control situations not in a really terrible way but I like to try and do a bit of damage control essentially but that's been really really useful for me is definitely recognizing my circle of control and what can I do actually there's nothing I can do about it so I need to move on. You mentioned grief counselling there, Izzy, so I want to move on now because the reason why you started Positive Changes in Placement was not just because of your own negative experiences of placement student life, but because your brother was a placement student and also tragically took his own life in December 2020. I want to go back to the beginning of your relationship now. What kind of person was Harrison and what was your relationship like growing up outside of the knife battles? <laughs> My brother was literally the best person. And I know that people always say this, but I think obviously the messages we've received since my brother passed away is it's just a huge testament. And it's quite nice to know that I just didn't think that he was amazing. Everyone else thought he was amazing. He was really, really intelligent. So he was training to be a maths teacher, but he already had a master's in aerospace engineering. So he was ridiculously good at maths. He tried to teach me how to do maths and I couldn't do it. But he also was really, really good at poetry. He was really good at art. He could play the ukulele, which he self-trained. So he would go busking when he was like 11 years old on the streets of Winchester because he taught himself how to play the ukulele. But he was also so passionate. If you got a topic that he could speak about, he would go for it for hours. And my mum was sometimes like, for goodness sake, you two, will you shut up? Because <laughs> we just got like really overexcited whenever we saw each other. And we just got on so, so well. In fact. A couple of weeks before my brother passed away, I saw something on Pinterest, which was this really weird, like, so it's a man in the shower, but it's a weird drawing. And I sent it to my brother and he was like, why have you sent me that? And I was like, because it's weird. And he was like, yeah, that would make a sick tattoo. So I've now got that as a tattoo on my body because of my brother. But we just, we got on ridiculously well. And I don't know that many other siblings that were as close as me and Harrison. We would go for a week or so without speaking, but we had a family group chat with my mum and it was called the family of Sprogs. I'm Sprog one, he's Sprog two. And my mum was called Mama Sprog. <laughs> but we would talk on the family group chat every day. And it was just, although we would definitely bickered like siblings, 
we also always made up we never ever held a grudge against each other and he would call me out on my shit and I would call him out on his shit as well so but yeah he was just he was literally the best person I understand that Harrison had been struggling with his mental health for a number of years up to his passing is he but as you said he underplayed it quite a lot like a lot of us lads doing a lot of English people generally when he we are the kings of the understatement before we get to the day of his passing, like you said, he was always so caring and supportive of other people's mental health, but he never, well, at least from your perspective, never took time to work on his own. Looking back, do you think that was maybe Harrison's maybe optimistic general disposition or was something deeper at play? Maybe did he want to bury his mental health difficulties and use that energy to support others so he would avoid confronting his own? Like, How do you sort of look back on that? I think it was because he struggled himself that he wanted to make sure that other people were okay. So World Mental Health Day in October, he posted on his Instagram story, and it's still on his highlights of, I've been struggling myself, but I'm here. If anyone needs me, my DMs are open, my phone number is here, please contact me. I think he just had quite a lot of empathy because he realised how rubbish it could feel. He didn't want other people to be going through the same situation as him, but he was very much an advocate for everyone else in the sense of like, when my ex broke up with me back in October time, my brother was there for me constantly. And he was like, mate, I'm here. Like, just give me a ring whenever you need me. Don't do anything stupid. And that was his thing. Don't do anything stupid. And he sent me a cheese plant, which is the logo of positive changes in placement, because my brother sent me it because he wanted to cheer me up and he wanted me to feel happier. So he literally sent me a cheese plant. He sent me a pot and he sent me bags of soil. <laughs> He wanted me to feel better and he was always so worried about everyone else's mental health but I think that was because he had so much empathy because he was 100% struggling with his own demons in a sense. Can you walk me through the day that you found out Harrison passed away and died if you can Izzy? How did it start and begin and when did you sense something was seriously wrong? So I spoke to my brother on the Sunday evening so my brother passed away on the 7th of December which was a Monday so I didn't speak to him on the phone but we were texting about what to get my mum's boyfriend for Christmas and I was sending him books and then he didn't reply and that was quite normal in all fairness. So obviously Monday morning woke up, went to work but I, and I'm not someone who is like overly spiritual but I was in a foul mood all day. I was in the worst, worst mood and I was just like, I can't be bothered to work. I've had enough of this, blah, blah, blah. Came home from work, was going to do a home workout and then I was like, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to pour myself a gin. So my mum called me and she was like, I can't get hold of your brother. And I was like, oh, no, it's fine. Because he would sometimes do this. Like, he would drop his phone and it would break. I was like, no, no, it's fine. Like, don't worry. And she was like, well, he was with Amy last night, his girlfriend. And I was like, okay, well, I'll drop her a message on Instagram. But they were quite newly together, so I wasn't friends with her on anything. And then I called my mum and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I was like, I'll give it a couple of hours. And if we've not heard anything, then I'll message Amy. My mum would text us both in the morning every day. Morning, you okay? And she then got concerned because he didn't reply. And she kept texting him. She kept calling him throughout the day. And then when my mum said this, I kept trying to call my brother. And it was just going straight to voicemail. So I was like, this is weird. Oh, well. So I texted his housemate, Jake. And I was like, hey, um, do you know where my brother is? He literally messaged back straight away. And I was chopping up a bit of chorizo because I was going to make some pasta. <laughs> and he replied to me on Facebook and was just like, hey, can you call me? So I called him and I literally like, I still remember it so clearly and it's 100% the worst day of my entire life. And he was just like, I'm so, so sorry, but your brother's dead. So I then had to call my mum to tell her that my brother was dead as well. And I think the rest of it was a massive blur. Like 
I just knew that I had to get home. So I texted my two best friends. I called my manager and I was like, I can't come to work tomorrow because my brother's dead. <laughs> they were like, what? So my manager was amazing. Well, my, I had two managers at the time, but one of them was like, right, it's fine. Speak to your family. We're all here for you. My other manager was amazing. And he was like, what can I do for you? Can, should I come to your house? And I was like, no, no, I'm going. I'm like, I need to leave. I need to get out of London. And he was like, right, what are you packing? And I was like, I don't know what to bring. I don't know what I need to bring with me. And he was like, okay, all you need is a phone charger, your phone and your purse and your keys and just make sure you've got that the rest of it you'll be able to sort out I just remember calling various different people it was such a weird blur and then I just got an uber to Waterloo and the man was like why are you crying so much and I was like because my brother's dead (laughs) which is awful (laughs) like I just said it because I didn't know what the hell was going on but yeah it was 100% the strangest day of my life I remember getting back and my auntie picking me up from the station and then I don't really remember anything probably for about two months in a sense I can pick out little key incidences so my my ex came down that night because I called him he was like why are you calling me and I was like because my brother's dead and he was like oh my god right I'm coming to see you and we'd been broken up for about six weeks but we were very very close obviously when we were together so he was like I'm coming down but I just remember a few key moments from probably December and January and I can't really remember anything else because my brain completely blocked out what had happened I was going to ask you about like what your overriding emotions were, but it seems like you there's not a lot of memories that you have of, of that period. But I do want to come back to this fear of abandonment that we discussed earlier, Izzy, because Harrison told you on a couple of occasions that he would never do anything to hurt himself and he wouldn't leave you, but tragically he did. At the time, and I guess this would be a completely natural emotion to have, did you feel let down by him or even in your worst, maybe betrayed by him? What's your reflection on that? Yeah, I definitely did. And I felt really angry at him as well that he had done this because my mum had always said, you know, if anything ever happens to you guys, it's going to be the end of me in a sense. I did feel really let down. And I also felt really let down that he didn't feel that he could talk to me because we had very much an open relationship um, in that we could say anything to each other. And the fact that he hadn't called me or said to me in that moment, and everyone had been speaking to him earlier that day, that he didn't feel the need to say anything. I felt really let down, and I do still feel let down, but I also understand that he was in a really bad way, and I just feel sad that we weren't, I wasn't able to help him, and I wish that I could. Yeah, I just wish he was back here, really, so that we could talk this out and be like, what was your thought process? Mm. (laughs) But obviously we'll never know, so. Mm. Given the shock and trauma that you and your family experiences, from the memories beyond that sort of suppressed period. What was that grieving process like from that point onwards? Right, so this is ridiculous, but I read Dolly Alderton's book probably about four weeks before Harrison passed away. And in her book, her best friend's sister dies. And she was like, I just remember those days of lots of people coming around and I learned how to make everyone's cup of tea. And then that was my life. My tea was being made for me. And there was just, it was a constant flurry of people wanting to come and see us. There was flowers everywhere. Like we had to go out and buy an extra 10 vases because we had so many flowers. And there was like gifts coming to us, people. It was so much and it was almost slightly overwhelming in a sense because there was so much love coming towards us. But the grieving process is the, it's the weirdest thing. So it is quite interesting, actually. My, my therapist said the other day, she was like, grief is a nice little neat word and to kind of put it in a box but grief is not neat grief is messy you don't know how you're going to feel from one moment to the next even now I can't regulate my emotions enough 
and it is it's very messy you don't know where you're going to be you, you're angry you're sad then you're happy and actually you've you feel really happy that you had all that time with someone but yeah it's very strange and it's been so up and down and it's the least linear process there is I think I've spoken to many guests about grief and loss Izzy and like you said grief never f- seems to fit into one neat process or and everyone's experience of grief is different some guests have said to me that they feel that grief is more stigmatized than mental health is that something that you'd agree with and if so why is that I agree with it in a sense of like I don't want to not perform because I'm grieving and also the grieving process never ends so I don't really know if it's stigmatized as such but I do feel like oh she's she's not going to do this because she's grieving you know it's so strange and because I've never properly been through grief before this I've had like my great aunt died and it was sad but you kind of move on but this grief is like literally like a hole has been taken out of me so it is yeah I think that there could be an element of stigma to it but I don't want to underperform personally because I'm grieving and then actually I have to remember that I am grieving and it's okay if I don't feel all right because it's only been five months since I lost my brother so yeah yeah it's just so complicated (laughs) One guest I spoke to called Lottie Swinyard, she lost her dad. And one thing that she said is that a lot of people externally will put a like a grief clock, like a ticking clock on how long they need you to deal with the grief for. And then after that clock is done, then they expect you to sort of be normal. Is that something that you found in your experience? Yeah, so I'm I'm really experiencing this at the moment, actually. And I do think that some people think I'm going to be back to normal by now, that it's almost like a breakup that by five months on, you're going to be over it. And I recognise that, like, I'm not the same, I'm not the same person at all that I used to be. And I'm not the same friend. And I can't cope with with a lot of what other people tell me because I'm just processing so much still at the moment. But I do think that there's people who think I'm going to be okay by this point and I'm not. And then that, that then puts it on me I'm like why am I not okay like I should be all right by this point and then it's not until I speak to my well-being coach or whatever they're like Izzy it's been five months it's absolutely fine for you to not be okay still but that's really interesting that you say that because I've been really feeling it because five months you feel that you should be kind of starting to move on a bit I want to go back to Harrison the person so tell me a few stories about your favorite memories of him throughout your life Okay, so one of my favourite memories is me and my brother would always go out separately on Christmas Eve, but to the same pubs. So he would go with his friends, I'd go with my friends. We would end up meeting up at a pub called The Halfway Inn. And my brother got kicked out because he poured himself a pint. He reached over and decided to pour himself a pint. It makes him sound like he was really naughty, but he actually wasn't. He just did mischievous things. But because he was so like cheeky with it, he just got away with it. And I called him and I was like, where are you? Like, we need to walk home. And he was like, I'm on the roof. And I was like, what do you mean you're on the roof? He was like, I'm on the roof. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he was on top of the library roof. And he was like, look up. And I was like, what the hell are you doing up there? He used to love to climb things. Like he, if there was rocks on a holiday, he would be off on the rocks. Like if we went on holiday, he would be off for like two hours just going for a long walk by himself because he didn't like to sit down. But I think my other favourite story is me and my brother both went to America just together. So my auntie lives in Illinois and me and my brother were like, let's just go and visit her. Let's go see our our cousins. And the two of us flew out there and it was literally the best week of my entire life. I've got a tattoo of my ankle from it. It's of my auntie's sundial and it just reminds me of being there. But it was just so much fun. Like 
but we it's also when whenever I looked after Harrison I would try and cook us different meals and I tried to cook us a roast once and I put sweet corn with a roast which is very weird and then we would always have angel delight for pudding and we called it cool pip and my mum would be like oh what are you eating oh we're eating cool pip <laughs> he was such a character and since my brother's passed away I've become really really close with his friends and they tell me all these stories of him and I'm just like I can't believe he used to get away with that when he worked at Waitrose, he would sit in the in the fridge, like literally the massive chiller, and just sit and eat olives for like an hour by himself because he was like, I'm not working, I don't want to work. <laughs> you told me your mum's partner thought you were both twins at first when he met you both. Do you hold that memory close to you now as sort of testament to how close you were as siblings? Yeah, definitely. I was buzzing when Paul said that, to be honest. I was like, oh, that's amazing. And I'll show pictures of of my brother to my friends at work. And they're like, oh, my goodness, you guys are just the same. And one of his friends, when he was drunk recently, was texting me. He was like, oh, sorry, forgot that you weren't Harrison. (laughs) I was like, what? Because we're very similar in terms of, like, political opinions. We're both very, very opinionated people. We'll both speak our mind. He was definitely naughtier than I am. And he also was more intelligent than me. There was elements of us that were very, very similar, but my mum has been like, so, so a lot of people were like, oh, does it upset you knowing that Izzy is so similar to Harrison? And she was like, no, because I can really see their differences. So I think to people who are slightly further away from the family, they don't see us as two different people in a sense. They think that we're extremely similar and we don't even look alike. Like he's bald. I have hair. Very different. But I think we had very much the same energy about things. But when we were growing up, he was always the laid back one. And I was the one who was highly strung. Even when like we were babies and stuff, my mum was like, you're a nightmare as a baby. Harrison was perfect. All he did was eat and sleep. <laughs> if Harrison was listening to this pod, is he? And I'm, I'm sure he is somewhere. What do you think you would say to him? And what do you think he would say to you? I would just say to him, can you come back now, please? And I've said that to him so many times up there. And I think he would say to me, like, what the hell is going on? In the sense of, why are you doing all this campaigning? Why are you on a podcast? Why are you hanging out with all my friends? And can you stop trying to be me? <laughs> Literally, like the other day I went for drinks with one of his friends that I've, I've never met before, but we're on the same group chat. And one of his other mates. And I was like, this is the most bizarre situation. Why am I here? Why is it not Harrison? And last night, so I'm staying with my, my brother's girlfriend, which is really strange because why am I staying with my brother's girlfriend? And we like had a little gathering and I was like, I'm not meant to be here. This isn't meant to be me. This was meant to be Harrison. And he would 100% be like, what the hell are you doing? Can you get away from my life and stop trying to be me? <laughs> Just on that, do you think you're maybe subconsciously doing that because you're trying to make up for the life that he is now not able to lead in a sense? 100% I, I think I'm probably going through a little bit of a midlife crisis in the sense of I tend to only hang out with people who are two years younger than me because they're my brother's friends to be fair I feel so close to all of his friends and it's nice because we can talk about him and remember him and everything and like I'm really close with his girlfriend but I think I am slightly trying to make up for the life that he's not able to live now and if I'm doing something I'm like well Harrison would want me to do this but also if I do something naughty at home my mum goes oh for goodness sake is and I'm like well, Harrison told me to. Harrison would want me to do this. And she's like, you can't use that excuse. <laughs> and as a final question before we move on, what have you learned about grief along this journey? And what advice would you give anyone who's listening to this pod who's struggling with grief from your 
experience? I would say that it is so personal. Your grief is never going to look the same. So mine and my mum's grief is extremely different to each other. She gets really upset. I don't really tend to cry. You kind of just have to ride with it in the sense of you can't put yourself into a box. You can't make yourself feel anything. You can't make yourself act a certain way. And I think that's initially what I was doing is I was like, why aren't I sad? Why aren't I crying all the time? Because that's what people should do who are grieving. But my grief is manifested in other ways in the sense of I get really angry at people. I have a lot of physical symptoms in the sense of I've got really bad neck pain and it gives me tension headaches. And that's how my grief is kind of coming out. Whereas it is such a personal experience and you never know how you're going to deal with it. And you just kind of have to take each moment as it comes and not put too much pressure on yourself. And I'm kind of giving myself this advice now because I've tried to be like, you need to be okay. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. And everyone has said to me, be kind to yourself. Just take each moment as it comes. And that's what I would say is just take each moment as it comes and don't feel like you have to grieve in a certain way because it's so personal to yourself. We've come to the reason why we are speaking today, Izzy, which is your platform, Positive Changes in Placements. There's an obvious reason why you started it, but tell the listeners why you felt inspired to start this platform and then what you wanted to achieve with it. So I created Positive Changes in Placement off the back of my brother. So my brother was a placement student and obviously myself being a placement student and I've worked with a lot of placement students in my previous roles. So the day that my brother passed away, he never turned up to placement and he was meant to be teaching that day. And it wasn't till the next day that we called up Manchester Met and we said Harrison's passed away that they knew anything about it. And that was basically because the placement hadn't said Harrison's never turned up. And I found that really surprising because whenever I was a placement student years back, it was very much you turn up to placement. If you don't turn up, you let someone know where you are. And if not, someone's going to be following you. So that's been very much ingrained in me. And I found it really surprising. I was like, why doesn't anyone know where my brother is? And it wasn't until later on that we found out that his mentor had messaged him at like three o'clock in the afternoon to say, where are you? Are you planning on coming in today? So kind of off the back of that, I realised actually placement students that no one a lot of people don't know about their whereabouts and they also don't know what's available to them and they're so separate from university students and from my experience of being a placement student of wanting to access counselling but because I was a placement student and couldn't make the set times I felt so separate to the university so yeah off the back of that and we strengthened their policies and basically made sure that their handbook put well-being in and that they just checked in on their placement students a little bit more and then from there, I didn't realise kind of how big this was going to be, but I basically put it onto social media, like, looking at doing this, can anyone help me? And it got like 120 retweets or something. And I was like, oh my gosh, like people are interested in what I have to say. This is weird. <laughs> Normally my friends are like, shut up, Izzy, stop being so opinionated. Yeah, so that's kind of how it all came about. And now I'm working, so I've worked with, I think, 12 different universities. There's been other universities where I've not directly met with them, but they've been like, oh, actually, yeah, we need to look at that. So we're going to make those adaptions. So there's the Suicide Safety Universities, which has been created by Universities UK. So we're going to be publishing an insert, which is kind of alongside that, which is guiding universities on how to kind of care for their placement students. So, yeah, it's ended up being quite a big quite a big mission. <laughs> yeah, it's been really nice, actually, to see you start that journey and sort of go on it similar to how kind of events been doing doing your research on the issue like you said you found out that harrison's university wouldn't flag a notified absence until someone had been absent for two days 
And I believe when you spoke to them that they didn't even know what their own policy was. I mean, how worrying was that? Did it make you angry? And I I guess it would have been very understandable and easy for you to cause carnage when you found out. What changes did you ask of them as well? And, and were you successful in that? Yeah, so I basically found out about it. So a few weeks after Harrison passed away, I thought, hold on a second. Why did no one pick up that he didn't turn up to placement? That's so weird. So I spoke to Amy because she's a PGC student, so my brother's girlfriend. And I was like, what's your handbook like? What's what's the policy on this? So she looked into it for me. And it was unless someone was basically didn't turn up for more than two days. And I was like, that's really strange. And I read the handbook and it was very much like, it was very black and white. It was what we expect of you. But the main thing that I asked them to change was the policy of unnotified absences. So if someone doesn't turn up, the placement lets the university know as soon as possible and that's what I asked them to do but they went completely above and beyond in all fairness and that's what's really inspired me to make these changes elsewhere so they changed their their unnotified absence policy they changed their PGC handbook and included well-being into it they started doing more check-ins for their students and they created a PGC forum and they also offered all of their PGC staff formal mental health training but I think they realized that they were like, actually, we've not done good enough here because I came along like, oh, you do realise your booklet says this? They were like, what? what? What booklet are you talking about? And I was like, oh, the PGC handbook or whatever. I can't remember what it's called. And they were like, um, oh, um, and I was like, yep, it's on, on page 14. And they were like, oh, right, okay. And I was just like, how is this? But I can understand how it happens in the sense of you get people who are new to the university. They don't get a full proper induction period. You get such a high turnover of staff that people just aren't aware of what's going on. So I initially was really, really, really angry. But the fact that they went above and beyond and they were so receptive to what I had to say and they were really apologetic, that definitely definitely mitigated it all a little bit. <laughs> when it comes to the relationships in our own lives, Izzy, I think the mental health conversation up until, uh, I guess, very recently was one of a lot of ignorance amongst a lot of our friends. And, and that's natural because they hadn't, experienced it so visibly from an institutional perspective do you think it was ignorance or do you think it was negligence or maybe a bit of both I think it was a bit of both and I think it's because they never had a circumstance like this that they had to recognize it and I think this is the same with a lot of universities whereas the universities where they have had multiple suicides and they're still not doing anything really about it in my eyes that is full-blown negligence and there's clearly not enough being done because if you look at the suicide rates, it is an epidemic, especially within young males. And I mean, it's a little bit dark, but if you look on like inquest for your local council, you see a young man's name, 20 years old or something, university student took their own life. It's such a pattern. And I can't, like, I'm also finding it unbelievable that there's obviously that BBC article that's come out and said that suicide rates haven't gone up. I don't understand how they've not gone up or is that ignorance, but... I think also the problem is when you're so surrounded by the word suicide and I and mental health, like I've completely immersed myself into this world, you do become very blindsided that you, it, that's all you see is suicide in a sense. But I do think it's a mixture of both. But I think with other universities, it is full-blown negligence. Despite only going for a short amount of time, you've managed to have some very high-profile meetings with a lot of people, including including the leader of the the current leader of the opposition, which I was pleasantly surprised by, but I was just like, wow, I'm not doing anything with Vent here. How big a moment was that for you? And how big a moment has that been to have those meetings and conversations? Has it been a bit surreal maybe as well? It has been unbelievably surreal. So basically Keir Starmer is my local MP. I'd emailed him 
about the nurse's pay I don't know about a year ago or something not even that and I then emailed him to be like hey I'm doing this I want to create legislation (laughs) and I actually heard back from him and I was like what this is nuts so they set up a meeting between myself and Keir Starmer and he was so so lovely but it has been utterly surreal like I say to a friend oh I've done this on my day off today they're like what like why are you speaking to these people this is so weird but yeah so I've had a meeting with him I've had a meeting with a couple of other opposition MPs but literally yesterday I got an email through of Keir Starmer had emailed uh, had written a letter to Michelle Donnellan the university's minister about me and the campaign and I was like this is so weird to see my name on like official stationery (laughs) but it's also it's really encouraging because it means that has shown to me that I'm not just barking up the wrong tree and I'm not just talking about something that actually doesn't matter the fact that people are listening to me I'm like actually maybe I am talking about something that people are caring about so yeah it's been nuts I can't really believe it a lot of it has been from social media but also it's been like people that I know have been really good and it turns out that so an old college friend he works for the Labour Party so he's managed to get me meetings with various people and a friend from school worked for the tab so it's like it has been a lot of who I know as well which has been really useful but you don't realize that you know these people until you put it on social media and they come out the woodwork. (laughs) What is your ultimate goal for positive changes Izzy? What will be your dream achievement? My dream achievement is for every single university who do placements or higher education institutions to look at their policy and make sure that if a student doesn't turn up someone knows where they are and that they are actually looking after their well-being and they're treating their placement students like real students rather than just someone who's paying these fees and they're not actually a part of the university. So that's one goal. Another goal is to create legislation because there's all these fantastic frameworks that are out there, so such as the Suicide Safe Universities, and a lot of universities aren't actually adhering to this at all. So I'd love to create some legislation, but I think that's going to be extremely time-consuming. I'd love to just kind of do this as my full-time job in all honesty, but I just want to prevent one more suicide. I want to stop one more person feeling how my brother felt and my family having to go through what we've been through. That's my ultimate goal. If, if I save the life of one person, that's all I care about. I know this is a difficult question, Izzy, but going back to Harrison, do you think if there had been better wellbeing policies in place for him that he'd still be here? I think it's really difficult and I think about Harrison's suicide as the Swiss cheese model which is something we use a lot in work in the sense of if all the holes align that's where an incident happens and I don't know if what I'm doing would have saved my brother but I think maybe if he'd had a little bit less pressure on his PGCE in terms of his hours that could have potentially done something. I don't know it's so difficult because I think that suicide is so multifactorial and especially within young males like my brother where they're so highly intelligent that they over my brother overthought everything but I think if if that was the one thing that could save him then yeah fine but I don't know if it would in all honesty I have no idea. I know you've only been doing positive changes for a short amount of time but so far what has it taught you about yourself and given what you have achieved and hopefully will achieve in the future do you think he'd be proud of you? Yeah I think he'd be so proud of me he'd be like what the hell are you doing talking to Keir Starmer like why are you doing that? This has taught me that I'm a lot more determined and resilient than I realised, but also that I'm actually quite good at public speaking, <laughs> which is weird. It's something that you don't really think about, but I've realised that actually I can talk quite a lot. But my brother would be so proud of me. And 
that's what kind of really motivates me each day and I've been struggling with motivation for like actual work work and I then think actually my brother was so proud of the fact that I was a nurse that on his first date with his girlfriend he spoke about me being a nurse for like half an hour and her sister's a nurse so they spoke about that for ages so I think I just want to make him proud every day and that's what really really motivates me is that he wouldn't want me to be lying in bed all day he wouldn't want anything to happen to me because he was so adamant on that and that's what really really motivates me we have come to our final topic of conversation izzy and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter and chat about our mental health so firstly and thankfully Hopefully, I don't have to ask this question for too much longer because of this pandemic, but given everything going on right now in the world, how is your mental health at the moment? It's so up and down. And like, I don't even know what's going on half the time. I definitely am not as good as I normally am. I'm definitely struggling for motivation, but I'm using my brother to kind of help me power through that. But I'm hoping that things are going to get better with easing of restrictions and everything like that and I'm going to speak to my GP on Monday just because I realized I've not had my medication reviewed in about six months so probably is best that I do that so I'm okay like today I'm having quite a good day but who knows what tomorrow is going to bring it is such an up and down thing and even within the space of a day I can be absolutely fine up until 12 and then all of a sudden I feel rubbish and that's all I can really say is I'm so up and down. (laughs) No that's fine that's absolutely fine. What age do you think you were Izzy when you became self-aware or first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, or they could have physical symptoms, but they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think it was probably when I was 18 and I was on a girl's holiday and I realised, I was like, am I going insane? Am I going mad? No one else seems to have the same kind of thoughts as me and no one else seems to be quite as all over the place as I am. So I definitely think it was probably when I was 18 and I've become very self-aware of it, almost almost too self-aware because like I've moved around basically every single year since, well, since I graduated really. And I've had a GP, like five different GPs in London. And I'm almost too self-aware because they kind of just let me get on with whatever I want to do in the sense of I'm like, I'm going to take this dosage of this medication and I'm going to do it. And they're like, okay, if it works for you, carry on. And they don't really intervene. I mean, off the back of that, in a sense of I don't like someone to try and intervene either, but I probably am overly self-aware and GPs probably find me too self-aware that I will just kind of do whatever I want in terms of medication. (laughs) Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? How did it go? And at the time, looking back, did it feel like a part of you had changed or a big burden or weight had been lifted? Maybe you'd entered a new chapter in your life from that point onwards or... Did it seem fairly insignificant and normalised? Do you know what? I, I definitely I remember it. It was April 2007. No, April 2014. So I remember going to the GP and just saying, I don't feel right. There's something not right. I'm really anxious. I just feel really sad and I just don't want to do anything. And I think obviously it must have been quite a prolific moment for me because I still remember what month it was all these years later. But... I think it did kind of feel like a weight had been lifted in a sense that it wasn't just me going mad. This wasn't just my brain. This is what, this wasn't just how it worked. But actually, there is some kind of potential chemical imbalance with it. So, yeah, I do think a weight definitely got lifted in a sense. And I remember walking out of there being like, I've been prescribed antidepressants. This is really weird. And I came home and told my housemate. She was like, oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Because also back in 2014, it wasn't really something that was overly spoken about. That was only seven years ago. But you didn't talk about your mental health. And actually bit of a tangent but I remember on one of my placements 
I told my mentor, I was like, oh, I'm on antidepressants. And she was like, probably wouldn't tell people if I were you. I don't think that's a good thing to be saying to people. She was like, I understand, but a lot of other people might not understand. And I now look back and I'm like, that's awful to say to an 18 year old girl. But yeah, I definitely feel like I don't mind talking about it in a sense, but I don't, I'm never open with it, which as I was saying earlier. Yeah, well, hopefully, maybe, maybe soon we can, you can get to a place where you are maybe more over, but it's, it's up to everyone. And, and uh, it's always, it's always in that person's interests and however long they take is absolutely fine. What triggers, Izzy, do you have that affect your mental health? Whether that be a sound, a sensation, a social environment, something that someone says to you, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I definitely haven't figured them all out yet. In terms of triggers, I know that I should be doing the good things of exercising, eating well, not drinking too much. And I definitely know that I should be doing that, but I definitely don't do it all the time. I think if I'm in a downward spiral in that I can feel myself, my mental health getting worse, I definitely stop exercising. I definitely stop eating well and all the rest of it. Other triggers can be like, I find noisy rooms quite bad. So like going to a cafe and you know, when you've got wooden floors and you've got metal chairs and it scrapes along, that really, really heightens it for me. Like I really can't cope with that sound and I'm like, I need to get out of here. So I think that's kind of a sound thing for me, but I don't really have any other triggers, but I just know that I should do the things that are good for your mental health, but I don't do it. And that's when I can see that actually I'm getting worse because I'm less adherent to those things. What tools and methods on the other side now, Izzy, do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked so well? Exercise definitely helps. Not that I'm exercising at the moment, (laughs) but exercise 100% improves my mood. Being around really positive people helps as well and people who kind of don't judge me. So I've I've got a really good friend up in London and actually being around her really helps just because she normalizes it for me. And also we don't talk about like life milestones in the sense of like, oh yay, someone's engaged, someone's this. We talk about the small milestones of like, I managed to get through this week or my manager said well done to me today and we celebrate those things so that definitely helps me and I know that what doesn't help me is eating badly and things like that but I've tried like I, I try to do mindfulness and I just I love it when I do it and I'm like this is brilliant I'm going to do this more often and then I just don't do it because I'm just like oh I'm far too busy I need that extra five minutes of sleep in the morning so that definitely does help but I'm not particularly good at doing it <laughs> but I don't think there's any other things that yeah, I don't think there's things that I've tried and haven't worked. I'm not so good at doing the things I should be doing. And as a final question, Izzy, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their mental health if they want to do it? I think we need to create a safe space and a safe environment and we need to open up the conversation and the dialogue and not stigmatise it at all. And I know that's so easy to say, but I think the more that we talk about it, the more okay it is. And not like having preconceptions of people of like, oh, that person, like you see someone on the street who is obviously a little bit different to us, not thinking, oh, they're insane. That definitely doesn't help because then you're adding that stigma in your own head and actually just realising, actually, that person's not very well. I think we need to think about mental health as almost a physical condition. If that's what's going to normalise it, then think about it as a physical condition because you wouldn't go to work if you'd hurt your ankle. But it feels bizarre for people to say that I wouldn't go to, like you wouldn't go to work because your head's not feeling okay. So I think 
opening up the conversation is just a huge thing and just keeping the conversation going and I think we're getting there with mental health but suicide is kind of the next thing for us and the language that we use around kind of mental health and suicide is so important as well. Izzy to George thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you very much. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Izzy from Positive Changes in Placements for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with her. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow all the work Izzy does on social media for Positive Changes in Placement in the show notes and find out more about the work that she's doing for the mental health of students. As always, thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you want to support us more and you like what we're doing here at Vent, please also consider supporting our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk, or you can give a one-off donation to our GoFundMe, which is in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon, and remember, it's always okay to vent.